great privilege to be able to uh, take, Lord willing, the next eight weeks on our Wednesday evenings and go through this epistle um, of the Apostle Paul to the Thessalonians, the second letter to them. And so we'll take the next eight weeks, again, Lord willing, to make our way through this book. And so tonight I'd like to start out with just a, a general overview and an introduction to the book. And then we will take the first four verses of chapter 1 and try to break them apart and explain them and make our way through them and give some application um, as we close our time together tonight. And so if you have your copy of the scriptures, feel free to go to 2 Thessalonians. There were some handouts. Um, I trust it was everyone was able to get one that wanted one. If not, maybe to wave your hand and we may be able to get one in your hands. But hopefully you're able to do that. And... Um, be some blanks for, to keep you awake to fill as well. So as we dive into an introduction of the book, um, Paul is the actual author of the letter. And we'll talk about why there's three names at the, to open the letter, but Paul is the writer. You'll see that in chapter 3, verse 17 of this epistle. But the letter comes from three men that this church would know. Silvanus, also known as Silas, and then Timothy, they all traveled with Paul to Thessalonica to plant this church. You see that in Acts chapter 17 and Acts chapter 18. And Timothy was the one who gave Paul a good report about this church. And we see that in the first letter to the Thessalonians in chapter 3 and verse 6. And traditional scholarship would say that this book was written around 50 or 51 A.D. in the city of Corinth. Now Corinth was where Paul, Silas, and Timothy all met up again. Because if you're familiar at all with the story in Acts chapter 17 and 18, after they planted this church in Thessalonica, Paul and later uh, Silas and Timothy as well, Paul particularly was driven out of Thessalonica by antagonistic Jews. And so they kind of parted ways, and then they eventually found their way back together to the city of Corinth around 50 or 51, and that is when scholars would say that this particular epistle or letter was written. Now the background to this church, based on Timothy's report that we see in 1 Timothy, or excuse me, 1 Thessalonians, there was a lot of good stuff happening in this church. They were facing much persecution, a lot of affliction and suffering. And yet Timothy reported that they continue to receive the word of God with joy. They were a church that Paul would commend as an example to other churches about how to face persecution well, how to face suffering well. Their faith and their love were continuing to grow under this intense persecution. But as with any church that has human beings in it, there are some ongoing concerns that Paul needed to address. If you look through his first letter to the Thessalonians, these people were very confused regarding Christ's second coming. 
And for whatever reason, that issue didn't go away after the first letter, because if you make your way through 2 Thessalonians, you're going to see that Paul is needing to reinforce teaching about Christ's second coming again in this second letter. Also, the persecutions they're facing are getting worse, as we read about in 2 Thessalonians. And there's also a practical problem that cropped up amongst them because of these two other problems. And so in this letter, you can make a nice outline of three main goals or three main objectives that Paul is seeking to write about as he writes this letter to this church. And these are, number one, he seeks to encourage the church. He wants to encourage them because their faith and their love, as we already mentioned, is persevering and growing in the face of ongoing persecution. So Paul's pastoral heart is overflowing, wanting to encourage them. He also desires to clarify the truth about Christ's return. He wants to clarify the truth about Christ's return. And number three, he warns them regarding their brothers who are becoming idle. And that is going to be a symptom of the root problem of not understanding properly the doctrine of Christ's return and second coming. So he wants to warn them about idle brothers. Now, if you were to look at each chapter in this book, they all follow a very similar structure. Each chapter addresses one of these issues, and each chapter closes with a prayer for, each, for these believers. And the content of the prayer that wraps up the chapter, and again, we're the one that added the chapter divisions, but it makes it nice for us. The prayers that end the chapters have content in them that um, centers on the problem that Paul just addressed. So he addresses the issue and then prays for them regarding that issue. So that all brings us to the question we we all want to answer. Why study this book? How can this help me in my day-to-day walk with Christ, my relationship to the outside world, my relationship to God, my relationship to brothers and sisters in Christ? Well, we always need to start with the truth that this book is part of the canon of Scripture, so it's inspired by God. And all of the Scriptures are profitable for doctrine and reproof and correction and instruction in righteousness. So if this book is part of the Word of God and those Scriptures that are God-breathed and profitable, it's always going to be profitable for us to study the Scriptures. But in particular, what about this book? Well, there's some specific areas of the Christian life that this book addresses that I pray will first off be able to solidify doctrinally, to think correctly about these things that Paul wants to address to this church. And as readers of this letter, we can then begin to think correctly about these doctrinal issues first. So settle that. And then as 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 continue on, when we reorient our thinking correctly around a doctrine, then we're able to see, are we off course in our life because we've been off course about this doctrine? So it will serve to help reprove and to show us where we may have gone wrong. And then it will help correct us. It will kind of bring us back on the right road 
road, and then it will give us steps so that we can stay on that road and continue to have instruction and righteousness. We're going to start by solidifying these doctrinal issues and then how those affect our everyday living. So what are some of these themes that we're going to be discussing over our time together? Well, the first is God's sovereignty. God's sovereignty. His sovereignty over his people, the church, which would include their salvation, their sanctification, their growth into Christ-likeness, and their future glorification. And he will call them home or when he returns. Also be looking at God's justice and wrath on unbelievers. The justice and wrath of God upon unbelievers. How that will vindicate his people who are under their persecution at this point. We'll also see God's purpose in suffering and persecution. I've been hearing a lot of that from Romans chapter 8 as well. And you're going to see, especially in Paul's letters as you read them, that sanctification through suffering is one of the main tools that God uses to make us more like his son. And so we're going to see that again in this book. Christ's second coming. Those with um, a general knowledge of most of the books of the Bible, when you think of First and Second Thessalonians, typically you're going to think about eschatology, the second coming of Christ, the end times. And so we certainly want to be talking about that. And most importantly, Paul with his pastoral heart is saying that these, these believers don't need to have necessarily a systematic theology of eschatology where they they can they can chart things they know everything that's coming and when it's coming but rather he's encouraging them that the second coming of Christ is something that should inspire hope not fear or apocalyptic speculation where we got to try to figure out all these signs but rather Paul pastorally is saying Thessalonians, you have false information about Christ's second coming. I do want to correct that. But really, in the biggest light, I want to make sure that you understand that Christ's return is something that should fill you with hope, especially in the midst of your persecution and suffering. We're also going to look at a biblical theology of work. That's the symptomatic problem of their misunderstanding of the doctrine of Christ's second return, is that their brothers have become idle. And I'm sure there'll be more things that we will touch on as we go along, but those are the main ideas that we hope to be able to solidify doctrinally and then see if we need corrective measures in our own lives. So let's pray together, and then we will dive into chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. Our Father, we are thankful for your word, the immense privilege it is for us to have it in our own native tongue. And so many tools for us to understand it. And I pray that you would use our time over these next eight weeks um, to behold wondrous things out of your word. That you would open our eyes to see what the Holy Spirit intends us to see and hear and learn as he inspired Paul to write this letter to this church. We're dependent on your grace for that. 
But we know that that is a prayer request that you delight to answer. That we would grow in a deeper understanding of your word that would lead us to a greater knowledge and love of you and of your Son through the work of the Holy Spirit. As to that end, we pray in the name of our Savior Jesus. Amen. Allow me to read the first four verses, and then we'll try to walk through these together. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in all the afflictions that you are enduring. Now, I, I don't, it's not fun to admit things like this, but I, I would admit that sometimes more often than not, there are certain stretches in books or passages in Scripture that I can tend to, to gloss right over. So when you go into, say, a book study and say, I want, I want to dive into this book, typically we've got an idea or we want to find the idea. What's the main purpose of this book? Where's the meat of the passage? Where are the imperatives or the commands? I want to know what God is wanting to tell me to do. Or I might be using keyword searches to help answer a question, and that's going to f- help me find all the instances of some word within a book or even across the whole of Scripture. And those things aren't bad. Not at all. And as we study the word line by line and dive into it, we will find ourselves coming away with knowledge about all of those things. We should be able to say this is the main message of the book and these are the imperatives and the commands in this book that apply to me and this is a particular doctrine that this book centers on and I can be able to articulate what the teaching is on that doctrine. But if that is all our Bible study is for, all we look for, oftentimes it means we begin approaching the Word of God with our own agenda, our own desire to answer a particular question, to find something that we're looking for. And sometimes we need to take a more humble approach and go to the Scriptures and line by line ask our God to show us what He's intending to teach us. Because every word... Of the, of the word of God has proceeded out of the mouth of God. And yes, that includes introductory greetings to a letter. Things that we like, okay Paul, come on, you gotta, there's something in here. Oh yeah, the second coming, we're going to skip right to chapter 2. And we just gloss right over verses 1 and 2. And again, I'm, I'm, I'm raising my hand as guilty. But the goal tonight specifically is not to do that. There are a lot of things that we can mine out of, even this introductory greeting of Paul to this church. Before we start answering questions about eschatology and Christ's second coming and how we should view work or any one of those things, let's take the time to mine every word 
with a prayer that the Holy Spirit might reveal to us why even the greetings are inspired scripture. So let's dive into it. You may read the first part of verse 1. I know we've already talked about this, but if you're coming to it with freshness and come to the conclusion that, oh, there's three authors to this letter. Paul, Silvanus or Silas, and Timothy. As if they're all contributing their own unique writings and it gets put together to make the book. However, the majority of scholars, and in particular the Word of God in chapter 3, verse 17, affirm that the words that are written in 2 Thessalonians under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit are Paul's. Silas and Timothy, as we already mentioned, had very close connections with this church. They were church planters with Paul. Timothy visited them in Paul's absence. So the inclusion of Silas or Silvanus and Timothy in this opening greeting affirms to this flock that all three of these men love them. All three of them desire to see them continue to grow in faith and continue to grow in love. And then as we read this, again, we can so quickly gloss over this, but the inclusion of all of these men adds a human dimension to this letter. And sometimes we can forget that this was a handwritten letter that would be delivered and with eager anticipation be delivered to a church and they would unroll it and, oh, we got a letter from Paul and, and Silas and Timothy. They all are wanting to encourage us. And it reminds us that the church in Thessalonica, like ours, is a church composed of real people. A church planted by real pastor shepherds who have a real concern and love for this flock. And you can imagine even some of the heartbreak, humanly speaking, that they were all by these antagonistic Jews driven away from this flock and not able to stay and see them probably as deeply established as they would have wanted to. But even that, as we read the inclusion of all these men, that only removed their physical presence from this church. Their hearts were still knit with these people. Their concerns from these people remained. And their joy was overflowing in how God was growing faith and love in this church. I think another reason Paul includes all three of these men's names was that He wanted to contrast these pastors, shepherds, church planners, the ones that really cared for the souls of these people. He wanted to contrast them against those who are stirring up confusion within the congregation. Not trying to get too far ahead, but if you look down in chapter 2, Paul writes this, Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ... And are being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. So Paul is aware that there were some in Thessalonica, maybe even within the church, who are using the name of Paul, possibly Silas and Timothy, 
to try to give credence to their false teaching that Jesus had already come and they missed it. Stirring up this confusion. And Paul, at the beginning of this letter, is is probably saying as he's writing these names, Flock, precious church at Thessalonica, you know us. You need to remember our love for you, that our teaching was not causing you confusion, but was encouraging you and building you up in your faith. So remember us so you don't easily fall prey to these false teachers. Even if they say that their teaching comes from us, remember what we taught you. And so even the inclusion of these three names is important for us to pause and look at. But then he moves on in his greeting. I think I just paused it. Yes, good. All right. And reminds them of who they are. He reminds them of their identity. He said, You are the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He said, Yes, you're a you're a called out assembly, your church within this religiously and culturally diverse region and city. But you're a people not merely united by living in the same city. You're not just the church of the Thessalonians. Because that wouldn't set them apart from anyone else living in the city. But rather, he goes on and says, you're the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Paul is once again invoking his union language. Not a worker's union, but being united to God. It's how he describes God's people. And in so many of his letters, again, rehashing what has been already spoken about in Romans chapter 8, there's so much in him, in him, in Christ. This is the dominant description that Paul uses for believers in his letters. And that should say something to us regarding the language we use to describe our relationship to God and to one another. So yes, we are Trinity Baptist Church of Concord, New Hampshire that establishes our location and establishes some of our our doctrinal distinctives. But the deeper root, like this church, is we're Trinity Baptist Church of Concord, New Hampshire, in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now certainly that's not a catchy title to try to fit on a sign or to put on a website, but it captures the reality of who we really are. They are in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul's basically reminding them of the gospel. He says, remember God the Father has chosen his children before the foundations of the world out of his own love. And it is this love for his own children that proceeds out of him and is displayed perfectly in the work of his son, Jesus Christ, his redeeming work on the cross. The cross was the means that God the Father used to atone for the sins of his people and redeem them, to adopt them as his own, and also to glorify his Son. The writer of Hebrews says that Jesus Christ's work was made perfect through suffering. 
And it's the work of the Holy Spirit that awakens God's children to the beauty of Christ. We see that in 2 Corinthians 4. That seals us until the day of redemption, until we're fully glorified. So the gospel is this beautiful Trinitarian work. God the Father's love for his people is poured out through Jesus and sealed on our hearts through the Holy Spirit. And if we were to share our testimony using the same language, we could kind of reverse that or or make the cycle. The Holy Spirit opened our blind eyes to see the beauty of Christ and his work. And as we place our faith in his work, he unites us to himself, his life and his death and his resurrection, so that we can then be called the sons and daughters of God. And that's what Paul's reminding this church of. He's saying, find and remember your unity, your identity is in the gospel. Because you're not just Thessalonians. You're the church in Thessalonica that is in God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. And a, um, even just a small doctrinal note. It's not small in the scope of things, but it's small as far as the space and time that Paul gives us. But again, something we can glance right over. But this greeting affirms the deity of Jesus Christ. He is truly God. He is one with the Father and with the Spirit in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So we even see a bit of Christology here in Paul's greeting. But he doesn't stop there. See, Christ's deity is affirmed. Christ's deity is affirmed. But he doesn't stop there. He moves on. And actually just allows this doctrine of the gospel to overflow now into the work of sanctification in their lives. He doesn't divorce the justifying work of God from the ongoing sanctifying work of God. Because then he says grace to you and peace from proceeding out of God the Father, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now this grace and peace is a, is a greeting that Paul uses in every one of his letters, but it is by far not, it is not formulaic. It's just something that he writes mindlessly to open all of his letters because that's how he does it. There are no greater blessings to be bestowed upon God's people than grace and peace. Grace is God's, from our perspective, from a human perspective, grace is something that is unsought, unbought, and unmerited. It's God's favor that's given to us freely. So he's reminding them, grace is continually given to you out of the love of God the Father, shown through God the Son, Jesus Christ. This is how you became part of God's family, by God's grace alone. And it's how you're staying in God's family. And it's the fuel by which you are to live in accordance with God's commands here on earth. And he says, he's also giving you peace, rest, tranquility, absence of division. It's another blessing that flows from God the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ. And again, this is why our context is so important. You've got to imagine, again, what this church is going through. The intense persecution. This is no mindless passing greeting that Paul is giving to them. In fact, that would be very cruel and heartless for him to do that. 
in the face of everything that they're going through. It's like somebody coming to you and pouring out their soul to you and their struggles and um, difficulties in their family or in their marriage or uh, a difficult medical diagnosis or loss of a job. You can fill in the blank. And you basically respond, well, grace and peace to you, brother and sister, and walk away. That is not what Paul is doing. Nor is it wishful thinking on behalf of Paul. Well, I hope with all these problems that you have, somehow you're going to get some grace and peace from God. Kind of like, you know, you see on your social media feed or those that aren't in the body of Christ. Kind of, well, somebody goes through a difficult time. Well, thoughts and prayers. Well, that's, that means nothing. Paul here is confidently asserting that you're standing in God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. How he roots their identity at the end of verse 1. So they're standing in God. He asserts that this now grace and peace is flowing out of your position of being in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This grace and peace is rooted not in your good works. It's rooted not in how well you're doing or how poorly you're doing. It's not rooted in your circumstances, but it flows out of that eternal, everlasting love that God has placed on you as his child, displayed through the work of Jesus Christ. And so this is, again, no passing greeting. This is confident assertion that they will continue to receive grace and continue to receive peace because they're in Christ and those things will flow out of that relationship. So those who are adopted by God the Father, united to Christ's perfect life and his resurrection and his death through the gift of faith, All of those who can claim that by grace alone are the continual recipients of God's grace and peace. And as we could all give testament to, and as we'll read in the scriptures here in 2 Thessalonians, this grace and this peace is not a removal from pain. It's not a removal from their suffering. A removal from the evil corruption of this world, from persecution, from afflictions. But rather, it is a gift of grace and a gift of peace to live for the glory of God in the midst of all of these things. It is a lasting peace that allows us to set our minds on the eternal weight of glory that awaits those that persevere in this life. And so Paul confidently reminds these believers what they have been given from God the Father, and from God the Son. So all that's in that initial greeting. Let's move on to verses 3 and 4. Paul's commendation to these believers. So after this very personal and theologically rich greeting, Paul moves into a time of commending these believers and thanking God for these believers, for what God is working within them. He states that my thanksgiving to God, and then as we'll see later, his sharing of this incredible work that God is doing in their lives to other churches. He saw this as a moral obligation. It's an ethical responsibility. I am driven to do this. He says he ought to do this, and also that it is right to do this. It's fitting. 
As one of their, from a human perspective, spiritual fathers, their church planter and pastor shepherd at some point, he feels it's very fitting for him to thank God for the growing of their faith and the love that they have for one another. And he reminds them that this is a supernatural work. It can be attributed only to God. The Holy Spirit is the only source of true, genuine, biblical faith and biblical love. It is God's gift to his children. So as a pastor, for me and for all of us as fellow members of Trinity Baptist Church, how are we doing with this? How quickly do we thank God when we see the evidence of his work in another believer's life? It's going to demand that you're around people enough to know what's going on in their lives and how they are growing, to be able to see the evidence of God's work in your life. And even Paul, being physically removed from this church because he was driven away, was so concerned he sent Timothy to go check in on them. And he brought back this good news that their faith and love is increasing. And his response was, I can't do anything but give thanks to God for this. But this didn't stay in his prayer closet, didn't stay in his pastoral office. He was then moved to boast about this church to other churches he was visiting. There is no shame in Paul to tell other believers how God was working among the, and within the Thessalonian church. We see here from Paul, there is no room for territorialism when it comes to God's work in the church. There was no contest going on between all these churches that he had planted or that other people had planted. There wasn't such a narrow focus in Paul's mind that only God was, quote, blessing one church and certainly could not bless another. Because again, going back to the doctrine that we established of God's grace in salvation and sanctification in verses 1 and 2, if it is truly God alone who bestows the grace of growing faith and love amongst the members of a church, Every other church should thank God when they hear spiritual growth of others, whether in their own ministry or without. If it's happening in a church down the road or another part of the country. If we truly believe that salvation, sanctification, and glorification is a grace alone, we have no room for boasting of ourselves. There's no room for us feeling like we've got the corner of the market on those things. But rather, when we see that evidences in the life of other people, we should thank God and find opportunities to publicly display that as well. So that's why Paul's opening greeting here is so important. No church, the Thessalonian church, the Ephesian church, the Galatian church, Philippian church, has no room to boast in themselves. They are only a true church because God the Father has shown his love to them through the work of his Son so that they're in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. True churches are given grace and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So there's still no room for boasting. So then as God works through his grace to grow faith and love, every true believer should rejoice when they see it happening. All others through whom God is working 
are trophies of his grace. We should be moved to thank him for it. God's faithfulness is on display when his people show evidence of being united to Christ through the Holy Spirit. So again, anytime we see that, yes, we should encourage them, but we should ultimately go vertical and thank God because it's his work in them. Without Christ, we can do nothing. A branch cannot bear fruit by itself, but only if it's engrafted into the vine. So without this gospel-centered, Christ-exalted view of sanctification, which is evidenced in Thessalonica by increasing faith in love in the face of intense persecution, the boasting will so easily become man-centered without being reminded of the gospel. Our boasting for any work so easily and quickly becomes man-centered. Just think, if, if, if Paul wasn't rooted and grounded in the gospel the way he is, he would probably be moved to do one of two things when he sees these things happen. Ah, that's because of me. <laughs> I planted that church. Boasting is here, even in his absence. Or, he'd be bitter and jealous that they're still growing even after I was driven out. How can that be? I thought it centered on me and my work in their midst. But rather, Paul remembers he's a servant who waters and plants and he can rejoice wherever and whenever God brings increase of spiritual fruit. So his boasting and his giving thanks is not centered in how he planted the church and his work in their lives. God used the means of Paul and Timothy and Silas and whoever their pastor elders are. We don't even have them mentioned here in their absence. But Paul, like us, should be able to boast, not in ourselves. And in one sense, he's not even boasting about the people of the church. Ultimately, he's boasting in God for his work in these people that's being evidenced by the growing fruit of faith and love. So, what does this mean for us? How do we apply these first four verses? <clears throat> so there are many that you could think of. Here's just four I want to leave you with tonight. Let's remember that our true unity as a church family is found and rooted in the gospel. The truth that unites us as brothers and sisters as a true church of God is the gospel. So, do we find our identity, our grounds for boasting as a church family around the sovereign work of God in our salvation and ongoing sanctification and our future glorification? Is our identity in God the Father that of His own grace unconditionally elected us before the foundations of the world and that Jesus is Christ's perfect life and substitutionary death, his victorious resurrection, his ascension to the right hand of the Father is the only thing that can reconcile us to God. We did nothing to deserve it. Can we affirm that the Holy Spirit is the one who's given us new life and gives us the gift of faith to trust in Christ alone? We have to remember that we are a true church because we're in God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ by His work of grace alone. That's the definition of a true church. 
with all the confusion about what a church is, is it center around their programs, a celebrity leadership, a certain music style, is there something for every age group, and the list could go on. Here we find a succinct biblical definition of a true biblical church. It's a church, a gathering of redeemed saints who are in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Number two, grace and peace continually flow from the God who justifies. The God who redeemed us, the God who redeemed this church, bestows continued grace and peace to his people. There's no other way for the church to grow in love and faith without God's grace. So God's grace in the gospel is not just for our moment or point of justification or salvation. The glory of the gospel is is that it's for all of life. We need the gospel for salvation. We need the gospel for growth in Christ. We need the gospel for final glorification. We're a church in God who then continues to be given unmerited favor, His grace, and the results of that favor, peace. So may God allow us to look above and beyond our circumstances to the author of grace and peace. Number three, we must not be stingy in our thanksgiving to God and to others about how God is working. Do we feel the same obligation, the same compulsion that Paul did to thank God and spread to all believers he came in contact with about the increase of faith and love in these believers in Thessalonica? Or have we become so territorial that we doubt or second-guess the work of God and other believers because it didn't come from us. It didn't come from our teaching. And lastly... Real, genuine faith is indestructible. Real, genuine, saving faith is indestructible. In fact, it will not cease to strengthen and grow even in the face of persecution. Pastor John MacArthur states about this passage the flip side. So genuine saving faith is indestructible, but he says persecution destroys false faith. So God in his infinite wisdom ordains suffering and affliction to strengthen and purify his church. It's one of the tools he uses to distinguish between false faith and true faith. It's one of the ways that we see if a profession of faith is like the seed that springs up but later the cares of the world come and choke it out and prove that it had no root. Or if a profession has sprung out of good soil, given by the grace of God alone, finding the object of that faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ, if that is your faith, it will grow even in the face of persecution. And it will be maintained by the grace of God until His second coming or until you go to be with Him. Because real, genuine, saving faith is indestructible because it's a gift from God alone. So Christian, rejoice in suffering. If going into it, when you're in the middle of it, coming out of it, you find yourself still clinging to Christ because you have been united to Him. So God has ordained suf- God ordains suffering is not a sign that He has abandoned you. 
but actually it's evidence that He's still with you. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for Your Word in a passage that I numerous times have glossed right over as a um, kind of a cursory greeting before we get to the meat of the, the book. But Father, it is... It is humbling to know that, again, every word that we have in the Scriptures is inspired by you and it's profitable. And I pray that that would continue to be our attitude as we study over these next few weeks and our personal study. Thank you for Pastor Jonathan carefully and giving much attention to making sure that what he proclaims on Sunday mornings is truly the the Word of God as it was intended to be spoken and taught. We know that you, you, you commend the church in Second Timothy that we are to be the pillar and the buttress of the truth. We don't uphold the truth, but the truth upholds us, and we just need to submit to it. And I pray that that would continue to be true of Trinity Baptist Church. So thank you again for your word. Thank you for your, your, your sovereign work in our lives of saving us, shaping us, and sanctifying us through, oftentimes through suffering and trials, and giving us the blessed hope of the second resurrection where our bodies will be united with our spirits and we will see Christ. May that be our blessed hope as we walk through our week. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you. You're dismissed.